Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. Oof, oof, God, that sounds great. But like, before we get into it all, we have something else that sounds pretty great. Actually, let me just take that back. Is pretty great. We have a brand that we, mm, chef's kiss, cannot wait to introduce you to. Like literally. Yes. And I'm like a full fangirl of this brand. So I'm just really excited. <laughs> like I think genuinely if Maddie could get a tattoo on her forehead of this brand's name, she might. I would fully get Prima across my forehead um, because I'm obsessed with this brand and everything they have to offer. But I guess we should tell you about them, right? So Prima is a wellness and skincare company, and it is a new purpose-led California-based hemp CBD brand. I hope you guys all got that. But here's the thing. So did you know that 75 to 90% of all doctor visits are for stress-related issues? Which like when they told us this, I was like, that makes sense. It (laughs) literally, (laughs) right? I was like, I like went back in my Zoc doc and I was like, what (laughs) appointments have I made? And I literally was like, oh, yep, related to stress, my bad back. Like it was like thing after thing. And I like felt this so hard. Mm -hmm. Can't sleep, acne, whatever, everything. And then the mask me then brings more stress. <laughs> it totally does. It's all cyclical and it's a problem. Obviously, a lot of us deal with it. 
we got stressed. It's also Mental Health Awareness Month. And, you know, the timing of this could not be more perfect because whew, we need a moment. Also, like COVID, what's a pandemic? Because that's also been around for a while now, which has been extremely stressful, to say the goddamn least. Yeah, and then added a few wrinkles. <laughs> and so, like, obviously, a lot of us have been operating kind of the survival mode. So to change this reality, Prima has dedicated the brand to helping you rise above modern day stress. So like I said, everything you're dealing with and more. And they're really just trying to make every day a little bit better. So they have amazing doctor formulated, clinically validated, high performance products for skin, body, and mind. So one of the favorites, which is my fave, Prima's the daily CBD capsules. And they basically just like help to relieve daily stress. And I, I mean, I just, I swear by them. I cannot tell you enough. Like I am the most high energy ADHD person ever. I can barely finish a sentence without 10 other thoughts. Maddie knows this too well. And she needs it. And I need it. I need and it. And we love it. We love it. But you know what? You also like love their skincare. You guys, I've been just waiting for this moment to talk about Prima <laughs> and definitely their skincare because I have been using Prima and some of their skincare products for about about two years now and they're almost two years old. So like I'm a I'm a stan. I am an OG and it is by far like my favorite skincare I have ever used. So they have a couple products. I've used their Enlightenment Serum, which is like a great like everyday serum that helps brighten, refine pores and like even your skin tone. I mean, why do you think but she's you like might... glowing so much? Do you see this I'm just face? constantly glowing. And thank you to the Enlightenment Serum, but especially my absolute favorite, the night oil. You guys, this oil has changed my life. And the first time I used this, like two years ago, I haven't stopped, first of all. But my skin was just like even toned, hydrated, soft, all, all the good things. And I literally have not stopped using it since. So with all of this, you guys, Prima... Prima Prima. They are a clean, climate positive, and responsibly sourced company. I and mean, just every single product is really amazing. So lucky for us, Prima is offering all of you an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. Head to Prima.co, check out all their products, see what works for you, see what you need, um, and feel better every day and like look cuter, start glowing all the good things. So again, that's 15% off with girlgov at prima.co. I'm so excited today. Oh my God, this episode, like I'm just obsessed with our guest, obsessed with this topic, the way she explained it. I'm just very, very grateful for her to like shed light on this issue in such an amazing way. She just did a really great job at like simplifying everything and like highlighting just like kind of the reality of the issue and like let us like step away from the political like discourse around it and this topic you guys I haven't even said it yet it's (laughs) immigration it's painted in so many different ways politically that makes it very confusing but she really like stripped it down and just made it very understandable in a way I haven't really fully understood it before either so yeah she's a star she's my favorite I want to be her Literally, and me too. I guess we should probably like say her name and like what she does I guess it seems like it makes sense so I guess we'll do that so our guest is Layla Razavi and she is the deputy executive director at freedom for immigrants so let's get into it 
I think the perfect way for us to get started is to dive into your background. So you've been named one of the top five immigrant experts on Twitter, which side note is like a whole platform we're just getting familiar with. <laughs> yeah. How did that sort of come to be? Like, what is that background for you? Is like getting involved on Twitter, this particular, you know, arm of, you know, advocacy, where does that story begin? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you guys today. It's a great question. I think it's kind of funny because I'm not very social media savvy myself, but I started working in the immigrants' rights movement right after college. I think my parents immigrated to this country before I was born. And I grew up as part of an immigrant community. My parents are from Iran and I grew up with a lot of Iranians. We'd go to the Persian market and I was used to being in this bicultural world where, you know, I would go to school and with my friends, everything was like completely you're in the US. And then I'd go home and it was like you stepped into Iran and we had a lot of family coming and staying with us. My parents were among the first to immigrate. So I really got the sense of like people who were coming from a different country and watching, you know, new um, immigrants like coming and trying to learn the language and get settled and get jobs. And because we were among the first, I got to see like our relatives who came over in that process for them. So I didn't have a conscious thought as a kid of like, I, I want to go join the immigrants' rights movement, but I really knew I wanted to do something that makes a difference, that helped promote equality, that made sure everybody had a better quality of life. And so when I got into the immigrants' rights movement, I applied for a fellowship out of college. I think like a lot of folks with liberal arts degrees, I had no idea what to do with my life or how to make a living. <laughs> I feel and that. <laughs> right? Retweet, retweet. Yeah. And so I think I just basically started applying for fellowships and internships and anywhere I could get my foot in the door. I got a fellowship working as a legislative assistant. It's part of like a training opportunity that the California state legislature has for new people who are young and want to get into public policy. So I worked for a legislator and I got a job offer from there working for the largest Latino civil rights organization in the country, and they work principally on immigrants' rights issues. And it kind of stuck. I realized I was working on legislation that would have benefited my relatives and my family growing up. So it just made total sense. And the Twitter thing was just a fluke. I think like a lot of nonprofits, we just don't have enough staff. And I was going to events and you'd have to like share it with the communications and media team and they would try to retweet it. And we didn't have enough people and it wasn't getting online when I'd go to events. So I just created an account and started tweeting. And lo and behold, Donald Trump comes into office and suddenly like people were interested in my opinions when I was just raging about him. Yes, that's amazing. All of that, first of all. And we also want to dive into about you're the deputy executive director at the Freedom for Immigrants. Can you kind of explain what is Freedom for Immigrants? Like, what is the mission? What do you guys do? What's give us the whole spiel? Well, the easiest way to explain it, if any of your listeners have watched Orange is the New Black on 100%. Netflix, in the final season, <laughs> they go into immigration detention. Some of the women who are released from Litchfield State Penitentiary get transferred into ICE custody. And they're there and the, the woman we're watching is freaking out and doesn't know how to get support and is afraid of being deported. And somebody passes her a slip of paper with this hotline that's free that she can call for support. 
and it's the Freedom for Immigrants National Detention Hotline. So I think that's how a lot of people know about us <laughs> um, was through that show. But essentially what we do is conduct a monitoring of human rights abuses in detention centers across the country. We do that principally through our National Detention Hotline, as well as visitation groups that we partner with. These are all volunteer run. So these are folks who are giving up their free time to go into these facilities and to answer phone calls and meet with people, talk with people who are inside who can share their firsthand testimony of exactly what they're experiencing inside of these prisons. Wow, that's amazing. I love that reference. That's a great <laughs> reference. I did not know that. I did not make it to the final season, actually. I should need to. <laughs> But great show. We love it. It's a good one. They go a little bit like haywire, <laughs> like a lot of shows. You know, like season one starts out yeah, strong. Yeah. It kind of goes off the rails, but they bring it yeah. back. Like the last season was a good one. <laughs> well, now we'll like definitely have to watch. Yeah, exactly. 100. 100. Yes. It gets better. Yes. I'm into it. And then what is your what is your role there? Like what do you do? And, you know, you oversee development and strategy of policy communications and monitoring and investigations. So what does that mean? in this context? And what does your day to day really look like? And how does that fit on a business card? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. So what we do essentially is we have this team that's working on collecting all of this evidence in real time and filing civil rights complaints with the federal government, trying to call for investigations and transparency and accountability. A lot of times there are horrific stories that we've come into of people who are being abused, accounts of sexual assault that take place at the hands of guards or retaliation. So if people who are inside complain about their treatment, oftentimes they'll be slapped with an expedited deportation removal order, or they'll get physical abuse, harm, they'll be thrown into solitary confinement. So we really push for transparency and accountability around all of that. And then our policy team and our communications team is really the external facing arm of the organization that takes all of those stories and testimonies and tries to share it with the public and with legislators. And our ultimate goal is to abolish immigration detention. Our vision for the world is a world where people do not get thrown behind bars just simply for the act of crossing a border. We think that's fundamentally wrong and inhumane, and we believe that the facilities are not making us more safe as a country. And so it's really those teams that are coming up with the strategy of how do we convince Congress? How do we convince the Biden administration? And part of that is being able to share the stories with the American public, because I really believe that most Americans, when they find out what's happening in these facilities, there's so little information and transparency. I think most people are horrified to hear about what is happening using our tax dollars. And I always believe sunlight is the best disinfectant. So just bringing those stories out into the world My day-to-day is really supporting staff. Once you get into the management level of things, you're less involved in like the day-to-day of doing the work and you're more engaged in bringing up the new generation of people who are in their 20s and early 30s and helping them build out their experience, which I really love. We're predominantly um, female-run staff, so it's really great to be coaching young women in their careers and supporting them as they're starting out. So my day is a lot of Zoom meetings at the moment, but (laughs) pre-COVID, I was traveling and on an airplane quite a bit, meeting with people around the country too. I love that. And then I also, something else that I love is your point about bringing up young people and making sure that they have like the right mentorship and support. And so of course, you know, makes me think, okay, what was your sort of 
process getting here too? Like who were your mentors? And I know that you had a role at the ACLU previously. So I'm curious about, yes, we stand heavily. (laughs) But what that experience was like, just in general, what you did there, and then also how did that inform sort of your role now and your ability to mentor young people in the space? Well, when I was starting out at the state legislature as a legislative aide, and then when I was a baby lobbyist, I mean, I was 21, 22 years old, like very, very young in my career. And I was so heartened to find how many women and women of color were really reaching out to me and offering like to do lunches. And that's something that's been lost, I think, in this pandemic. But people were really, really great early on in my career of like just making themselves available for networking, really wanting to extend a a hand to you and show you the ropes and show you how to get around. I have to say that I think that shifted. Once you got into management positions, I felt like once you go from like being in your early 20s to hitting like 30 as a woman, I think being in workplaces and being in positions of power, it actually becomes very tough and challenging because suddenly those offers of like, hey, let me show you the ropes stop. And I think people can be really territorial, very cutthroat. And I think women are always juggling this need to feel like they're nice and liked and also like in a position of power and can lead. Totally. And that's something I very much struggled with. You know, I think we operate in a lot of male dominated spaces and there's a lot of pressure to lead in a certain way. And one of the biggest lessons I had you know, somebody told me basically, I was like, I I feel like I go to work and I try to like think like a man and I, I feel like I have to like exist like the way they do. And then I come home and I have to like decompress and then go back to being a woman. And the person I was going to for advice was like, well, what if you don't do that? What if you just lead like a woman? And it was a very simple thing, but that little shift really changed the game for me. And I was like, wait a second, women are great leaders. (laughs) Like we're really collaborative. We get input from lots of different people. We kind of operate under like, I don't necessarily know the best answer. So I wanna be really consultative and get input from all sides here and come up with a shared vision. And once I did that, it took like a few years in management to make that shift. But once I did that, my experience as a leader completely shifted. And I felt like I had a much easier time feeling like authentic and how I, how I occupy that role. Yes, that's super interesting. But speaking of like the ACLU and your time there, I think we see the ACLU kind of in the news a lot, especially during the Trump administration with the work that they were doing. But what what is its role in immigration and immigration policy typically? Yeah, well, to go to your question of like how I got involved in the ACLU and what, what that experience was like, it's kind of a funny story. So I was living in San Francisco and I got a call, I applied for a job at the ACLU somebody who I used to work with was like part of the hiring committee unbeknownst to me. And he calls me and he's like, Hey, you're not really a great fit for that, but I actually have a great job for you. But here's the catch. It's in the Midwest. You have to go like live in flyover country in a red state. And I was like living in the middle of the mission, like out all night going salsa (laughs) dancing. And I was like, no way. But he explained the job to me and it sounded exactly like my dream job. And at the time I was about to turn 30 years old and I was like, you know, I want to get married and have kids and I can't like go. And it was a two year work contract. So it was very limited. So I ultimately subleased my place, went there and came back. But I was so nervous about making that decision. 
And, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's thing on like lean in, which is super outdated. And I know people are very critical of it, but one thing she said in that speech that always stuck with me, she was talking about the young woman she mentored who was like, I don't want to sign up for work projects because I want to like have family. And she's like, are you dating anyone? And she's like, no. <laughs> and I think we do this thing where we preemptively like mm -hmm. talk ourselves out of things. And she was like, don't take your foot off the gas because like you're going to need to do that eventually. You don't need to do it years in advance. That stuck with me. And I'm so glad that I did it because I got more experience and on the job training in those two years than I would have if I had worked for like seven years in the Bay Area. And I say that just because it's such a saturated market. I would have been competing with people who are like in their 50s, but going out to a place where there were not a lot of people working in immigrants' rights issues, I was suddenly like one of the most senior people. And I had on the on the job training from their attorneys in the New York and San Francisco offices. So I got to do tons of work and I had incredible training. And when I came back, I was super coveted and I had job offers in the Bay Area, in New York, in DC. And so it, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Yeah, the ACLU's role essentially in a lot of civil rights and social justice issues is really holding the government accountable and making sure that our government is not violating our constitutional rights. So they're really important in acting as that watchdog and taking litigation up through the court system, up through the appellate courts and to the Supreme Court when they feel like there's laws that are discriminating against uh, Americans or violating our civil rights in any way. And my job in particular was just working with people in different states around the country, but primarily red states where there was a lot of anti-immigrant legislation. So a lot of Republican state legislatures that were putting up bills that were unconstitutional and coming up with strategies to help defeat those bills, which was really, really exciting because you could see that work having impact on the ground. Totally. That just like the ACLU, I actually was like my best friend during the Trump administration because <laughs> I remember like just seeing stuff in the news and how illegal what former president trump was doing and i would just like be refreshing like the aclu instagram page like seeing whether they like have sued him yet because they're just like constantly suing him like almost every yeah. other day i was like love that love that <laughs> <laughs> well there's one thing i guess i would want your audience to like keep in mind because i think whenever these major things happen at the border or there's like some huge outrage over an, an issue that happens during the trump administration or even now yeah. in those moments i think we always go to the aclu and like give them money one of the things i saw was that there were a lot of like local college student, like self-started activist groups that were operating on the ground with really little support. And I feel like oftentimes those groups get lost in the shuffle. So I really think like right now, I know it's good to go to those like trusted names that you know that have that branding and name recognition, but now, especially in the pandemic, I try to go find like those mutual aid networks and like those small local community groups and food bank. Yeah. Like, where are the local community based things that don't have the big name and the big overhead, but you're really putting money in the hands of these volunteers and activists and you know they're going to take it straight to the source. I think sometimes we're afraid to do that because we don't know them as well and we feel like there isn't vetting. But just having worked on the ground, that was really my takeaway of like, wow, if all these smaller groups had support, they'd be able to grow too. That's such a good point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That leads me to oh, our I have a stupid question segment. And that first question is, what is due process? Like this is a term 
I swear to God, if I turn on MSNBC, every other word is, and the due process, and due process. I'm like, I think I need to go to law school now because I don't know what this means. <laughs> I don't think that's a stupid question at all. And I have to say, managing young women, I get this all the time of like, I have a stupid question. And I always say like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Due process is like it's simple and it's also archaic it's this kind of leftover vestige of like old British legal terminology so I, I think it's totally a great question to ask because it's so important but so due process is essentially a concept that's outlined in the fifth and 14th amendment amendments that says that the government cannot restrict your individual liberties without making sure that the process is fair and just so that's like really the simplest way to break it down. So what that means is a couple of different things. So for instance, if there's a law that's passed, it has to be shown that it doesn't violate your due process rights. And if you're gonna be put in jail or have anything taken away from you, like your liberty, if you're, if you're in prison or your property, if they're gonna take something from you, they have to show that they're not violating your due process, AKA that it was done fairly. So a great example of this in the immigrants' rights context is a lot of times, uh, let's say a local, like a small police force, let's say you just get like pulled over for this minor thing, you're taken to jail overnight, but when they run your fingerprints, if ICE, if immigration flags you for that small police department and says, wait, hold on to them, like we want to come pick them up actually because we think they're undocumented, they might hold you for a few days longer until ICE can come. So the question that a lot of courts have had to take up is, is that violating their due process? Is it fair once you've been determined that you need to be released for them to just hold you for a few more days in prison so they're depriving your freedom, your liberty for this other agency without a judge or a warrant or any fairness to come in and pick you up? And numerous courts have found that that is a violation of due process because we generally believe that if you're going to be in jail, there has to be like a warrant and a judge and some trial and some process to make sure it's fair that you're placed there. And so that's really due process in a nutshell. Nutshell is asking, was this done in a fair way? Was there due process? Due process is usually like a trial, a judge, a jury, a conviction, a chance to refute the charges against you those types of things. That makes sense. Well, no, great segue too. You brought up ICE. So can you explain what is ICE? What do they do? The background there. Yeah. I mean, so before ICE, there was the INS, like in the nineties, it was immigration and naturalization services. So, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up on like ICE and like abolish ICE, but I guess I just want to start by saying like, you know, there's this alphabet soup of different agencies. And, you know, my question is always like, if we abolish ICE, is there like going to be some new acronym of a group that's doing basically the same thing? That's such a good point. <laughs> but I've that, never thought about that. that function has, has been there for, for several decades now, but essentially the role that they're filling is immigration enforcement, which means enforcing our immigration laws. And what that looks like for us has usually been they go around and they try to find the people who are here unlawfully, that means without papers, and then they arrest them. And when they arrest them, they typically throw them into detention. So they're sitting in these immigrant prisons, and then they go through a process where they're facing a prosecution and being charged with a deportation order. So they have to go through that whole legal proceeding around their deportation order. But ICE's job is acting like the police for the federal government in terms of just immigration laws. Mind blown. AK, the whole idea that 
this has existed previously, I really didn't have any idea about. So <clears throat> to that point about alphabet soup, it's like you can get rid of one. It's like pop goes the weasel. You get rid of one and then another one pops up like five minutes later. So like totally. that's a whole larger discussion too of like, okay, then how do you like prevent that? Of course. But I think this totally. is very much largely connected to some other phrases and terms as well, like asylum. So what is asylum? What does it also mean to be a refugee? Mm-hmm. Like, And how does that connect mm-hmm. to ICE? Yeah, so under international law and U.S. federal law, we have this concept that there are certain people who require international protection because they face persecution in their home country. So what that means is maybe you're part of a religious or ethnic minority, or you're part of a protected group, maybe you're part of the LGBTQ plus community, and you're worried about being persecuted. So maybe you're afraid you're going to be tortured, or maybe you're afraid you're going to be thrown in jail, or maybe you're afraid you're going to be killed and the government won't protect you. So people who fall into those categories have a right under international law and federal law to seek protection elsewhere. That means to go find find a refuge, to go live in a different country where they can feel safe. And we have two different processes for doing that. And one of them is seeking refugee status and the other is seeking asylum. And refugee status is like you see those pictures on the TV or like UNICEF of refugee camps. They usually go somewhere and the UN or the US State Department or some international or foreign government has a process set up for them to like fill out paperwork, go through a background check, find a sponsor or a family, and then go to another country with permission in advance. But that process is pretty limited. Like to get refugee status, especially in the United States, is really hard. We don't allow a lot of them over. And we've usually done it for specific countries like Syria or Iraq, where we had a specific relationship with that country, or we've been at war and conflict with that country, and we want to help protect people who are there. Iraq is a great example, like the U.S. for a long period of time pre-Trump was giving refugee status to have provide protection to people who acted as interpreters for the military. Because if you're providing English to Arabic to English translation for the military, you're going to have a big tar- target on your back. But they do it because they know after doing that for a while, they'll earn refugee admission and be able to come with their family and live in the U.S. safely. So it's really like that, that kind of capped protected group. Asylum is the process everybody else in the world uses. So if you're in Central America, if you're in Haiti, if you're in West Africa, all places where there's a lot of conflict or violence and people who feel unsafe, you actually don't have a place you can go to get refugee admission to the US. So what do you do? You pay smugglers and these cartels and traffickers and you go through crazy, arduous, dangerous routes to get to the US, but the legal process is like once you show up and you're at the airport or the border or the shore and you like touch US land and territory, you have a right to say, I need asylum, I need protection. Like if you fly on a tourist visa and you're at the airport, you can just go up to like customs and border protection and say, hey, I have a 30 day visa, but I'm afraid to return, I want asylum. And you can start that process. And so it does incentivize like people to come here and try to get asylum. And when people say, I'm emphasizing this so much because you always hear in the news, like use the right process. And I'm like, they are using the right process. That's for better or for for worse, what we've given them. Totally, no, that's, I'm so happy you raised that for sure. Again, so pertinent right now. I mean, literally for the past many years, but for our next question, what is the difference between an immigrant and a migrant? 
It's a great question. I know. So immigrant and migrant <laughs> are like, these are not stupid questions at all, you yeah. guys. I think this segment <laughs> needs to be renamed. This is like super useful questions. Well, we want everyone to know that like <laughs> these aren't stupid questions and these are the questions everyone yeah. has and us calling them stupid totally. questions is like... <laughs> it's like reverse psychology, you know? Totally. <laughs> I love it. Um, I mean, I think these are kind of like casual and formal terms that are used. There's no like legal, like this is an immigrant, this is a migrant. But I think usually, generally speaking, when we say immigrant, like I say my parents are immigrants, but they both have U.S. citizenship. They've been living here for like decades. My dad's like a business owner. So they're immigrants. They've like immigrated here and that's now what the experience they've had behind them and usually when we say migrants I think we are talking about people who are seeking to immigrate somewhere but a lot of times there's this also connotation that it's not that it's like this nebulous process like they're not getting on an airplane per se they might be using some route they might be like part of a caravan they might be trekking for like miles and using multiple buses and crossing multiple countries there's a sense of like it's not quite clear how they're going to get to the finish line. That makes a lot of sense because I feel like those two, I always get so confused and then I like try and talk intelligently about it. And I'm like, yeah. which one is it? Totally. Like, is, is there even a difference? And so thank you for clarifying that because I, I feel like I, I trip up on that all the time. I mean, like you might have heard the term migrant workers. Like I know in California, we have a lot of migrant workers. They're seasonal back in the day when it was easier to cross the border, like they would come up during certain harvest seasons and do farm work for part of the year. And then they would go back to Mexico and they would come and go every year seasonally just to meet that labor demand. Right. So like migrant also kind of implies that you're just moving across borders. Okay. Another question though about that then. Okay. So a migrant labor, what's the difference there? Like, is there a legal, are they legally here then or no. It's a great question. It's like, yeah, it, no, it's like a, a wonderful area? question. So like even our ideas of the border have shifted over time. Justice Cruz Reynoso, he sits on the California Supreme Court. He's like this sweet old man, Latino. He's like, oh, when I came across the border back in the day, this was like the early 20th century. He's like, we would pay like a nickel or a dime and we'd like write our name in some log. And it was legal because back then our laws looked so different like they would just come and they would work and they would go and that was like part of how it happened and like i was born and raised in san diego and there are a lot of workers domestic workers folks who come across gardeners like they will come and do work and then go back or they'll be there monday through thursday and then they go on the weekend back to tijuana or back to baja and so that's all legal because they're like going through the checkpoint every day, they do their job and they come and go. So like those are all migrant workers, right? But now when we say migrant workers, I think we're also talking about agricultural workers who usually move around California and the Southwest. And they may spend like part of the time in this Northern Central Coast in like Salinas, Monterey. They might spend part of the time in the Southwest and they move seasonally with agriculture but they don't go back across the border because it's closed now. So like they're living here unlawfully oftentimes and they don't really have any choice. And just to complicate this even further, when President Reagan was in office, he provided amnesty, which has become like this crazy politicized loaded word right now. But back then it wasn't quite as controversial. In the eighties, he did this massive amnesty and a lot of migrant workers who were here unlawfully 
applied for amnesty. And so like retroactively, they gained lawful status. And so I think we have this idea of like, it's legal, it's not legal. And I think of it as a little bit more of a spectrum than that. Totally. That's so interesting. I, I did not know that. Well, that's also another good segue because we want to kind of dive deeper just into the conversation of really immigration here in the U.S. and how much of a hot button topic it is politically for sure. But there is so much to learn and to start like what what is considered legal immigration in the U.S.? What is really legal and how if you want to move to the U.S. and live here, what is really the legal process to even do that? Such a good question. So this is the thing that's really wild. Like I was saying, our legal process is if you want asylum to come here and then like you're here, quote unquote, without status, but you're going through the process just by saying you're afraid and you want to get asylum, you're you're legally here because like you're initiating that legal process. Another thing that's really like blown my mind and I think most Americans don't realize when we say like who's undocumented, who doesn't have lawful status, we have this image of people who are crossing the border illegally. The vast majority of people who are here without lawful status entered legally. So they usually come and they overstay their visa. It expires and they're like, no, don't want to go back. And I think that really flies in the face of the stereotype we have that like it's this like yeah, legitimate I mean, border crossing. Well, that's like just all the political rhetoric that totally you know, thrown around. Yeah, totally. But our process right now is you're in your home country and you go to like the U.S. Uh, embassy in your country, assuming that you have one, which isn't the case in every single country. You go and you apply. If you have a relative in the U.S. or you have a job offer, you're on like a specific track. And if you don't, like in a lot of countries, there's a lottery based system. You just like put your name on the list and like hope each time it comes around, they're going to call your name. And it's wild. The wait times are so astronomical. I just looked this up yesterday. The wait time for like the Philippines right now is 23 years for a family sponsored visa. So like if I'm in the country and I want my brother to come join me with his family, you write the letter, you do the paperwork. And I think like when my dad did it for his family, it was like seven or eight years. So it's grown and grown and grown exponentially. So when people are like, get in line, I just want them to understand the line is like decades. Decades. (laughs) Decades. No wonder people like overstay their visa because it's like, you have no other choice in a sense where you're going to wait like a third of your life to like maybe have an opportunity. And is that... 23 years. I'm sorry. I That just, whoop. And <laughs> it's wild. Is that, what is that wait time from? Like, why is that so long? Is it really because there's so many people trying to get in here? Is it really just that our system is oh, so just not efficient? That's a deep question. And I think there's a lot of things you can analyze. So like we have these quotas that are set up. And why do we have the quotas? Which countries are being allowed to admit how many people? And if you really want to go way, way back, I feel like the answer for everything in our country we've learned when it comes to talking about like police brutality and what we saw with the protests last summer, everything comes back to like racism and white supremacy. And the reason I say that is like this concept started with the Chinese Exclusion Act. That was our very first as a country attempt. Like when we had waves of European migrants coming into Ellis Island, it was like all fine and dandy. And then suddenly we needed cheap labor. And so we brought the Chinese over to work as laborers, migrant laborers on the railroads. 
and we had to set up specific quotas. And so that process has kind of evolved throughout time. When you look at the different variations of our federal immigration law, this concept of like, we need labor, but let's also control the limits of like people of color and how many we let in. That concept all started way back there. So I think we can have one conversation about like more resources and money to go to USCIS, which is the federal agency. Like Trump completely decimated that agency on purpose. Like he's kind of an aberration. Other presidents haven't done that. But even under better administrations, people would be like, they need more money, they need more resources, they need more staff. And I think all of that's true. But we also have to look at the laws and like, why do we have these quotas? Right. That is the history is so interesting too. Yeah. 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 And one thing that always comes to my mind too on this, like when you think about that, that's a sibling visa waiting like 23 years. Like if you just think about like your family and how close you are and being separated yeah. and, you know, maybe you're in a situation where you can go back freely, but like, for instance, for Iran, a lot of people don't have the ability to go back. And so you might be separated from your family for decades. Like I never met my grandfather. And so, you know, a lot of times what will happen is like, they'll allow one person, but not both. Because like, if the full, like I met my grandmother, but if both come, there's a risk of them overstaying the visa. But if you only admit one, they have to go back, oh, right? And so I, I say that only because I think we had such a big public outcry around family separation, which rightly so, what Trump did was so unconscionable, just separating kids from their families. But we have a whole host of laws that result in family separation. It's just in a different way, right? Like that's what that is, you're separated. Yeah, so does that mean that our, I guess, system as far as processing immigrants, does that need to be completely reformed, would you say? Is it super inefficient? Yeah, I think so. And I think we have to start with like, what are our values as a country? Like, right. who do we believe comes in and like when and why, yeah. right? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? You know, is it like safety and national security? Is it like the types of people, the types of, edu you know, like Trump threw in all these things about like, we don't want your whole family to come, right? Yeah. He was calling that chain migration. And, you know, like we just want certain types of labor, but not other types of labor. Like, what's the purpose? <laughs> Are we trying to reunite families? Are we trying to get high skilled labor? Are we trying to get low skilled labor? Do we want all different kinds of labor? Do we care what our ethnic and demographic makeup looks like, right? Like, do you have to know English? Like we have to start with like, who are we as a country, as a society? What are our values? And then the laws have to flow from there. And do any other countries that are like, you know, global leaders like us, like do they have similar immigration problems or how do their immigration like systems compare to to ours? Yeah, I don't think that any country has gotten this like perfectly right, to be honest. But I will say a couple things. One thing that's scary is that for the United States, like so many things we've exported, we've exported our immigration enforcement machinery around the globe. Mm -hmm. So one way we've done this is like, we've actually given money for our border patrol and ICE agents to go to Mexico to help train them. And so Mexico has created a bunch of detention centers and does increased enforcement. And it's because we've tried to get them to like create the facility and infrastructure for policing and imprisoning people who are coming through Central America. 
And so a lot of times when you hear presidents, like even democratic administrations saying like, oh, the numbers are lower at the border, it's kind of misleading. It doesn't mean people aren't migrating. It just means they're getting trapped like earlier. We've also seen detention centers proliferate across Europe and in Australia. And so more and more countries have been following our example and these multinational corporations that run detention centers have a vested interest in like upholding this model but like one great thing that came out of the pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic last year a lot of countries were like starting to release prisoners and close jails because of the public health concern of having people confined in these closed spaces And Spain made an unprecedented move. They have a lot of detention centers. They have a lot of migrants who come from North Africa and cross the Mediterranean to get to their southern shore. And they closed all of the detention centers that are on their mainland. I think they may have a couple holding centers offshore, but they've closed all the detention centers on their mainland and they just released those immigrants. They were like, they can just go through the immigration process. We don't need to actually hold them. So I think that provides a really exciting model for us to contemplate of like, how can we help people go through this process and go to immigration court proceedings and get asylum without holding them in a prison? Right. Yeah. And also like, I don't know. The the thing with Mexico just makes me think it's like, okay, we're outsourcing this so that other people do our dirty work. Totally. Like it just feels, I mean, obviously a lot of this just feels icky in general. Right. But like that particularly, like, because, you know, then to, you know, bring this broad stroke, but then if we think of foreign aid, the whole concept of foreign aid is to solve the problems there. So they don't come to us. And it's like applying that same mentality, but like in a way more fucked up way. 100%. It's like, see right through that. Okay. Can't pull the wool over our eyes. Like, But that brings me back to our southern border. Crazy amounts of news coverage since Biden has taken office around what's going on there. Can you give us like a little bit of like the 411 as to what exactly is happening? I feel like there's a lot of noise and I don't really know like what exactly the story is. I mean, it's a hard story to tell for sure. So it's not easy. But I guess I want to go back really quickly to this outsourcing thing, something that's wild to me. So like throughout the 90s and 2000s, it was relatively easy to get across Mexico to come to the southern border because people would ride on the top of the train. If you see, there's like a train that goes up the west coast of Mexico all the way from the south up to the north. And people would like sit on top of the train and they would just like hold on and hang out. And there's all these photos, if you Google it, of people on the train. the Polar Express. Totally. Like they would just sit up there and it was... (laughs) (laughs) relatively easy, but they started cracking down. And so now that there's like Mexican immigration authorities trying to get them on these main corridors, they've been forced to go through the interior of Mexico and take longer, more treacherous and arduous journeys. And they've become like sitting ducks to these cartels that operate there. So they're preyed upon. So they're facing like violence, extortion threats, and they're undocumented they're not there lawfully so they have no like they can't go to the mexican police and get easily coerced yeah so the exporting of our of our dirty work definitely has like a real human toll for sure yeah i guess with what's going on on the southern border uh, one thing that's really important to know is like i'll just say we've always had numbers of people that are coming from different countries to the southern border like that has been the case and that's going to continue to increase with climate change and with uh, global political violence and unrest, like we're just going to see more and more people who are climate refugees, who are political refugees. And something people may not realize, it's not all Central Americans who are coming, but there are people from West Africa and Haiti 
who legit spend months and thousands of dollars, like, and they'll get on planes, get routed and smuggled into like South America and then cross multiple borders and countries. Wow. So I've met like, I've met West Africans who like took several years. I met one couple, they languished in like an Argentinian detention center for months and then were able to pay like smugglers there and get all the way across to oh get to gosh. the southern border. Yeah. Wow. So it's not like one person. And if you're watching the southern border regularly, there are shifts. Like after the earthquakes in Haiti, there were a lot of Haitians. During the height of like the conflict in Syria, there were a lot of Syria. Like there's always going to be people coming. These are not the highest numbers we've ever seen. I do think there are people on the far right who want to trump it up as like Biden has caused this. And I think no that's also super. <laughs> <laughs> I know I realized it as I said it like I his name it. has it forever <laughs> ruined his <laughs> he's ruined that word forever right but you know it just it's not new it's not unprecedented that those numbers we've hit those numbers in previous administrations so just for context but one thing people don't realize is during the pandemic Trump shut down the entire southern border and so he said like nobody's coming in right now so people who had been already coming when they got there and the doors were closed, they had to set up like tents and basically just live in the streets. So if you go to Tijuana, Juarez, these like communities along the northern border of Mexico, there's just all these migrants who live in tent cities now. Wow. And there have been high rates of disappearances, a lot of violence because they're just sitting ducks and these yeah. like cartels can attack them. And when Biden came into office, he made the decision, whether right or wrong, <laughs> to keep the border closed. He was like, you know what? There's still a pandemic. I'm going to keep it closed. But I want to be humane, so I'm going to let children come across. So if any kids come here alone, we're not going to leave them in 10 cities. They can come across. He didn't say families with children. He just said children. just children. So what happened is a lot of the parents were in this like Sophie's choice of right. like, do I sit here with my kid in this really unsafe condition? Or do I send them across? And a lot of times, especially for Central Americans who've been migrating for decades since like the 80s and the Civil War in El Salvador, they have like relatives in the US. So a lot of parents have made the calculation of like, you just go. Like they'll give maybe like a 16 or 17 year old, like their seven year old sister's hand and be like, you two go, here's your aunt's phone number. She lives in LA, she lives in Maryland. Like just go say you need help get there talk to someone in a uniform show them this phone number and try to get to your aunt and they make that like sophie's choice calculation of like at least if i'm separated from you i think you're going to be more safe than sitting here with me so that like humane policy of letting kids in actually incentivized a whole bunch of unaccompanied minors to show up at the border Got it. and so there has been a study that about 80% of the children who are in these facilities right now that Biden has set up in recent months, 80% of them have a relative in the US who can take care of them. And so our question has always been like, well, why are they there? Like, why are we spending all this money to build these facilities, convert this convention center, create this big camp, like in a pandemic, my community where I'm from in San Diego, like that's my hometown, they've converted the convention center and there's already been an outbreak of COVID in the convention center. So like, they're not necessarily more safe being in these huge like mess hall dormitories with bunk beds, like who knows what's happening in there. So right. if I were a parent, I would rather they get to my yeah. 
aunt or my like relative or my cousin than just sitting in this like government shelter. The other thing is, and this is where I think like conversations about cultural norms and like racist ideas come into play. I think in the US we have like a very concrete idea of a nuclear family that isn't the case around the world. So the government has been separating children when they come with a relative that's not their biological parent. They're treating that as an unaccompanied minor. So if you're coming like with your cousin who's like 20, they're separating you because it's not your mom or dad biologically. And again, like if you're the parent and you're making that calculation of like, you're going to be safer with this 20 year old, this is like my niece and nephew, like I know this person, you're going to be safer, I'll try to get across when I can. You're not expecting the government to like rip and th so this is still family separation, it's just happening in a different way. And I think that's getting lost in the shuffle that nuance of what's really happening on the ground. Sorry, I have another question about this. Like, kind of what the next steps are as as far as this new administration and their policies going forward. Are there any updates on that? And if if not, like, is there some type of plan in place or what even are people advocating for and lobbying for as a solution? Well, when Biden was running, he promised in his campaign that he was going to shut down all private detention centers. And we were all really excited about that. We've heard nothing about it. So I would say we just really have to hold his feet to the fire and make sure that he comes through and makes good on that promise. On his first day in office, his administration on inauguration day put out a memorandum that was relatively like good. It was promising that they were gonna arrest less people and put less people in detention. And he said he was going to put a 100 day moratorium on all deportations. And that's something activists were pushing for for a long time from him. Like when you come in, give us a 100 day moratorium to like hit pause and reset. So he did that. And immediately ICE officials and agents around the country were in an uproar. They gave him a lot of flack for it. But let's remember a lot of the rank and file in ICE at the moment are avowed white supremacists and Trump appointees. Like this is open on their Facebook group chats. Like it's not a secret. And so they pushed back and dragged him really hard. And he immediately caved. In February, the acting ICE director put out another memorandum and basically said, just kidding, like we, those, those things that we put out in our memo were suggestions and you guys totally have discretion to keep arresting who you want. So he kind of walked it back and the state of Texas also sued him and the lower court in Texas found that they feel like they don't need to do the 100 day moratorium. So that also got rolled back. And the Biden administration didn't go hard the way Trump did when we would take him to court. The Biden administration kind of let that lie instead of like really fighting that litigation and trying to appeal it and push to go forward with the 100 day moratorium. So I think we also really want to push Biden to not like kowtow to the people like these eight, like they need to clean house, like who are who are holding these positions, right? Without these detention centers, what would that look like as far as, you know, immigration coming in, what would that process then become without that? This is a really exciting conversation that's evolving in real time with a lot of legal service providers and first response providers, especially along the southern border, because these are communities that have been doing first response for a long time when people are released. This happens all the time, like under Obama in 2014, 
there were high numbers of unaccompanied minors and a lot of families. And ICE was like, we don't have room and just started dropping people off at Greyhound Station. So it's always been like community groups and churches and faith groups that step in and provide like shelter, housing, water. I mean, our position at Freedom for Immigrants is that we really need to look at what's happened on the refugee resettlement side. It's not a salve, it's not a perfect system, but there is a model and a history in the US of welcoming migrants and refugees, and we have a structure in place. And I think we have to create a new process for migrants and asylum seekers that looks more like refugee resettlement and integration and helps people come and acclimate and integrate into the new community that's welcoming them, rather than treating them like criminals and putting them behind bars. And it's honestly not any more expensive. Detention is incredibly expensive and it's really dangerous and unsafe and harmful. And we could be doing something so much more positive that strengthens communities for the same amount, if not much less money. Yeah, well, I think that brings us actually to a perfect action item because we're like talking about money and we came across the National Bond Fund, bond money, you know, those little connections. What is it? How can people get involved? What's the story? Yeah, the bond fund is a wonderful way for people to support by getting people freedom. It's the best thing you can do that's concrete to help people in real terms. And you know when you're donating, it's not going to like overhead or staff salary. It's literally going to pay for someone's bond. We have seen crazy increases in the last four or five years in bond amounts for immigrants in detention. So judges, instead of charging like a couple thousand dollars, are now charging $10,000, $30,000 for someone to be bonded out. And these are people who have no priors. These are people who are incredibly likely to win their immigration case. So sometimes immigration cases can lag on for one or two years. There's no reason for people to be sitting in prison when they could be at home and with their families. It's also a lot easier, cheaper, and much more likely that you're gonna win your immigration court case if you're out of detention. You can meet with your lawyer freely. You can collect evidence. You can go to different government offices and meet with employers and get paperwork. So it's really important that people are free when they're fighting their court case. So you're helping on multiple levels, not just because you're winning them that time when they're home, but you're also helping them literally and making, making it more likely that they're gonna win their case. So you put money into the bond fund, other people put money into the bond fund, and then our organization pools it all together and gets it to people. And we have criteria. If you look at our website and go to our bond fund page, you'll see that we look at specific factors like who they're connected to. Do they have people in a community and family to support them? Do they have access to help win in their immigration case? And if they meet that set criteria, then we target and prioritize those people to receive bond money. And we literally have a staff person who goes every week down to the office and like post bond for people. And if you follow us on our Instagram at Migrant Freedom, you can see the pictures that we post when people are bonded out. And it's like such a feel good thing in this work that oftentimes feels so depressing, but you'll see people like happy, families hugging, people being reunited. There's so much like love and positivity. So it's a great way to know that you're making an immediate impact. I love that. That's amazing. And that's such a an incredible way to wrap up just on such a positive note way you can get involved. Is there anything else that you want to plug as far as, you know, where people can find you or other organizations you can highlight? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter if you want to hear all of my thoughts about the things that make me really mad about our immigration policy. I'm at Layla M. Razavi. That's L-A-Y-L-A. 
M as in Mary, and then Razavi, R-A-Z-A-V-I. And you can find me there. And for Freedom for Immigrants, the best way to get involved is to go to our volunteer page. We have a few different options that people can do. You can sponsor people, which is really cool. You basically fill out paperwork to say that you're vouching for someone and help get them out of detention, which is a really great way to partner with someone individually. You can also volunteer on our hotline and answer phone calls. You can get connected with a local visitation group in your community and go visit people in detention and provide them with support. So go to our volunteer page where you can read all about the different options and fill out a form. And it's a great way if you have a little extra time to give to get involved. Amazing. I love that. Love. Well, thank you so much for coming here today. We have actually yet to really dive into this issue, surprisingly. You did such a great job explaining everything. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, you guys. You're doing such a great job. I love the show. I love the platform. It's like so great to see young women getting other young women involved and anything I can do to support. I'm always here. Hey, thank, thank you. you so much. What's what's happening in the world? I have not read a newsletter. There's a few pieces of positivity in there, but this next one is especially sad. I can't lie to you about that. It really is. But we'll drop it with the headline, right? So essentially, you know, horrible weeks are ahead and happening as we as we speak in India as related to COVID-19. In case you haven't noticed, it's been getting a little wild. So COVID-19 infections and deaths are mounting with alarming speed in India, and there is no end in sight to the crisis. And a top expert warned that the coming weeks in the country of nearly, literally 1.4 billion people will be horrible. So of course this news is really horrible, but kind of giving me TBT vibes to last spring. Totally. But it just goes to show that like, this isn't over. This is still very much real. We may have the privilege of getting to go back to normal or, you know, a new normal in some capacity, but like that isn't the case for everyone else. We need to not remember, or we need to not forget that. And to drive that home even further, India's official count of coronavirus cases past 20 million, 20 million, which is nearly double than it was in the past three months. But like as staggering as those numbers are, part of the problem too is that the figures are believed to be far higher and that is being highly undercounted. The National Security Council coordinator for the Indo-Pacific area, Kurt Campbell, essentially said on a lovely little phone call, you let me know what you need and we will do it. So strong words. I guess we'll have to see if there's some action behind that and to what capacity and for how long. Curious also where that lands with other countries. I don't think this is going to be the first country where this is an issue and I don't think it's going to be the last. Yeah. I know we've started to send some supplies out there because I know they're like oxygen and ventilators and things like that. So it's also like not only a surge, but they are very much not fully equipped to handle patients. Hospitals there are turning people away. People have literally died on the street outside of hospitals because they had been turned away because the hospitals are so overwhelmed there. So super sad, but... But we do have an action item and it is raising money through a mutual aid fundraiser. So we will be adding the links to that in the bio of the episode. So check it out, jump in, 
India really needs our help. So hop on in. Definitely. For our next story, this is about refugees, which we kind of touched on today. And it's a little different from the immigration issue, but basically the Biden administration will raise the refugee ceiling, meaning how many refugees will be allowed into the U.S., to 62,500 people this fiscal year. And this all kind of came after receiving some swift criticism last month when President Biden kept the lower Trump era cap in place, which was only 15,000 refugees. So this did not sit well with a lot of people. And so, you know, since the Trump administration, refugee resettlement agencies have waited for Biden to really just like quadruple that number of refugees that will be allowed into the U.S. this year since around like February of this year. That's when they kind of expected it to quadruple or for him to make that statement. And the administration abruptly kind of reversed course last month and announced that Biden would sign an emergency determination that ended up keeping the this year's refugee cap at 15,000. But It wouldn't raise it, obviously, which he had committed to doing. So this immediately got blowback from refugee groups and Democratic lawmakers um, just frustrated with this like reversal on a promise President Biden made. So Biden resisted signing off on raising that Trump era refugee cap because of political optics, basically. And it all kind of came around the same time as when the administration was facing heat from Republicans and Democrats for its handling of the influx of migrants at the U.S. and Mexico border. So, but basically, like, that situation at the U.S. southern border is totally separate from the refugee program, which really dates back decades and has, like, a very thorough vetting process in place for refugees overseas to resettle in the U.S., And as we learned today, the happenings at the border right now is more complicated than it's painted politically and just through political optics and such. So that's that story there, whether it was the right pathway or not to finally raising that cap, it happened. So that's good news. And in other news, there are just a few little headlines we thought we'd read out to everyone. And this one actually does have to do with this immigration topic and, you know, what's happening on our southern border. So basically, the number of children held in border patrol facilities has dropped 84% since its peak last month. So pretty interesting news. I think we also like recorded this with Layla, what, two weeks ago? So this is a little update on this issue um, and a good one at that. And in recent weeks, the Department of Health and Human Services, which is responsible for the care of migrant children, has opened up a string of temporary shelters to accommodate minors that's allowed for like increasing number of children being transferred out of border facilities and into spaces that are more equipped to take care of them. So pertinent. In other news, Biden is embarking on a multi-state tour to promote and garner voter support for his $4 trillion sweeping infrastructure and jobs plan. So I will just say this. This just reminds me of Trump and his little pep rallies, to be perfectly honest. Like, I... Well, I think that this, you know, I I hate that it's called, like, a tour. Because, yeah, it makes me think of that. It also makes me think of, like, the Hunger Games, like, Victor Tour. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, can it not be like that? But it's really to, like, talk to voters and explain this infrastructure package, which is extremely large. And, you know, his whole goal is to ultimately win by 
bipartisan support. So I think he's trying to talk to constituents and hopefully use that as a tool to then convince a lot of Republicans to help him, you know, Ha- like have this ultimately come to fruition is my understanding but the the tour the tour vibes it's just so reminiscent of the trump element but it's funny because like when i well, think trump about ruined it, like, so much so. he totally did i think we're just maybe tainted from the trump era and we're just so like trying to like move on from our toxic ex but biden's in the news again i mean he's our president it makes sense I guess. it seems right it seems right. <laughs> another biden headline because biden has set a goal of administering at least one covid19 vaccine shot to 70 percent of u.s adult population by the fourth of july so again you know here in the u.s we're we're getting there in the covid realm but don't forget if you want to support india link in the episode description but the other thing that's going to be in the episode description is our brand ambassador program sign up sheet, <laughs> which we are working on as we speak. It is coming to completion thanks to a lot of great feedback from you guys. So if you haven't heard back from us yet, we will be getting in touch and we will be releasing details in the coming weeks. But we would, of course, love to hear more and more from interested parties. So use that sign up form add in your info and you know we like we said we will be in touch with more details yes but yeah so i guess that's that's the story folks so we will see you next week everyone stay tuned stay safe stay vaccinated subscribe rate review follow and we'll be talking to you all next wednesday Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.